Welcome to Moneymaker, the podcast that gives you the tools to enrich your life in every sense of the word. I'm your host, Nelly Galan. Let's get started. Oh my God, I'm so excited. One of my favorite people on the planet Earth, Nina Vaca, chingona, incredible Latina. You're the biggest Latina powerhouse we have. Come on, let's just admit it. You are the chairman and CEO of the Pinnacle Group, which is, you took it from a niche IT services firm to a global multi-billion dollar business. And you're such a nice, wonderful, beautiful, fabulous, generous person that I can't even believe it. And it makes me so proud to have you be my friend and so proud that you're in our community and so proud to promote you because you're the real deal, Nina. What can I tell you? I love you madly. Thank you, Nelly. What more can I say? You're incredible. The reason I've been dying to do this podcast with you for so long is because if anyone is an example that you can do it, it's you. I mean, I know that you always say my entrepreneurial life happened before I even came into this country because of my parents. Can you tell everybody about your parents and about how they came here and they became entrepreneurs? Gladly. But first, I want to thank you. I have mad respect for you. Anyone who dedicates their life to influencing and impacting others has my respect. And you certainly do. I'm proud to be your friend. And thank you for having me. So you asked me to talk about my parents. That's easy. And if you asked me to talk about myself, I would have began there anyways. My mother and father are Ecuadorian. They immigrated to this country, to the United States of America, to Los Angeles, California, when they were 17 and 18 years old. My father comes from a family of 12. My mother comes from a family of three, but very entrepreneurial. They came in as immigrants to this country. So I grew up, as you would imagine, I grew up very, very humble, but with a front row seat to entrepreneurship. My father used to work three jobs. He would work in the factory and then he would park cars in the night. My mother was a consummate advocate. She gave birth to six children, five are living today. Almost all are entrepreneurs. And it was a tough set of circumstances growing up with so many children, so much pressure. Today, I have four children, so I know multi big families. It's very stressful day to day. And then they found a small business. My father opened up a travel agency. And that agency kind of put food on our table. And that's how I grew up. But you also have told me that they tried a lot of different things before they even hit the travel agency, right? They did. They tried a lot of different things before the agency was the most stable. It was to the consumer. So it was a very cash-based business, very manual business. But I started working at the age of 10. So you know what you do in a family business? You start working very early in life and you start learning very early in life and just start seeing. And probably one of the biggest gifts my parents gave me besides my faith, my hard work and my values is they never tried to hide their pain from me. When we had bad times, they explained to me what a repossession means. They explained to me how hard business is. I saw them cry. I saw them argue. I saw them go through challenges and they never tried to hide that from me. And I think that was a real gift. You know, I think as parents today, we want to shield our children from any hardship. God forbid they go through any hardship. And what I always tell people is, no, it's the hardship that made us who we are today. And so do not shield anyone from the hardship. I think there's a lot of value in learning in that. At least it was for me. 
And you know, I always say in your pain is your brand. And I believe in that. That's what grounds you to something very deep. But what I love about the story about your parents too, is that you said the greatest thing your dad did is buy a computer and that that computer changed your life. It sure did. So as I mentioned, the travel sector was very manual. You used to actually have to call the airlines and wait on hold for hours. And as he was innovating in his business, which is why I'm a huge advocate for entrepreneurs using innovation, he brought this dumb terminal in at the time. It was a green screen. It was the Sabre system. And so I was 15 or 16 years old. It had a keyboard. I remember getting in directly to the airline and I was fascinated. It saved me so much time, but I was fascinated to see this computer that was innovating. Next was the automatic printer. If you're old enough, you know that travel vouchers, now what we call tickets, were actually vouchers and they were handwritten. So adding that technology made me very curious about what else is out there in the world. All I ever knew was my parents' business, our family, our community. And so it allowed me as a very young 15, 16-year-old to get curious about technology. And that curiosity is what took me to the IT sector after graduating from college. Now, in that period of your life, you had a horrible tragedy happen in your life around that time. Can you talk about it? I can today because I feel like it might benefit others. When I was 17, I graduated from high school. I didn't have any plans to go to college, by the way. I woke up one morning and I learned that my father was murdered in his travel agency. And it was a difficult time in my life. I can talk about it now with great reflection. During the time it happened, my whole world was caving in. What was it, a robbery? It was a robbery. So they didn't intend to kill him. He tried to stop him, which was the worst thing that can happen. But we had been robbed before. And so my father understood the challenges of having to report to the ARC. And as a small business, those numbers and those tickets are attached to you and your debt and your bond. And so it was a tragedy. They came in and robbed the agency because they were blank ticket stocks and blank airline tickets. We hadn't adopted to technology fully. Today, you don't have blank tickets. Today, you don't have the airline plates, but back then you did. So we were this close to adopting and having enough money to buy the inkjet printers and to have that be obsolete. It just didn't get there. So I woke up one day when I was 17 and my father passed away. And at that moment, I can look upon it with great reflection now and say it was that moment that I had to decide who I wanted to be in life. I could be a victim of my circumstance. No one would blame me. If I went into a hole, if I turned to other things, or did I want to make my father proud and live my life in a way where I could take the baton from him and take his values and everything that he brought to our family and our lives and make something beautiful as a result. And that's a very difficult thing to ask yourself when you're that young. And I thank God every day for the maturity and the discipline to be able to make the decision, uh, the latter. It was a very challenging time. I just graduated from high school. I didn't go to college like everybody else. All my friends went to college and I had to go work. And so here I was running this business that I knew inside and out, but I wasn't in a leadership position. I'd never been in a leadership position in that way, in that manner. I was managing people that were older than me 
or more tenured, I should say. It was a scary time for me. I took a year and ran my father's business and I begged my mom to sell the business and to put me through college. My mom had moved to Texas and so I found myself a lot of weekends on the red eye from LA to Texas, from LA to Texas and come home on the weekends. By the time I was 18, I was literally on my own, taking red eyes, running businesses and trying to keep our family afloat. That was some challenging times in my life. But as always, when bad things happen in your life, you have to ask yourself, is it happening to you or for you? And nobody can say, well, a death of my parent happened for me. That's, that's a very, very difficult thing to grasp and understand. But any challenge you have in your life, I feel like there is an opportunity to learn and to grow from any challenge. You know, I was in a dinner party and everybody goes, how can we be happy? Everybody's trying to study happiness. And I go, you know, your life is just not going to be happy every day of your life. Life throws you horrible years, horrible circumstances. Everybody, everybody, you don't go through a whole life floating. You just don't. And you're right. It's those moments where you make decisions and that's where you show your character. So the year after this whole thing happened, you did ultimately decide to go to college. I did after a year. Did you feel like you were giving to yourself? Like, Because also Latinos don't leave. Like I've had so many young women and you know, I left home at 16 as well. So many women that want to go to college and their mother goes, don't leave, don't go, don't do this. And I know you had an epiphany where you said, I have to go. The point that you're bringing up, sadly, is a quintessential point in the Latino community. Family is everything. My dear friend, Giselle Ruiz, said it well. She said, I was so close to my family. I was so tight-knit with my family that it was easy to leave. And I thought, what? And so that was a beautiful kind of sentiment for me. I always felt what made it easier to leave is the fact that I wanted to go in search of opportunity, not just for me, but for my whole family. When my father died, he didn't have insurance. We're immigrants. We didn't have a 401k. He didn't have a whole stock portfolio like we teach our children to have today. My parents had nothing. They had this small business, which really meant a world of debt. And so I knew that they were selling my father's business and taking that money and putting me through college. And I knew that that money was going to be spent on me looking for an opportunity and then going and finding my family. And so I, I felt like in many ways, that decision of leaving home was one of the most brutal decisions I had to make, but a necessary one. And what made it easier for me is I wasn't just thinking about myself. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to learn, and then I'm going to search for opportunity. And somehow I will come back and help my family as a result. So it was a very challenging time for me. My mother and my sister put me through college while they were working and going through college while the family is working is also very tough because you get an incredible sense of guilt. I had the opportunity to be a keynote speaker for the Hispanic Scholarship Fund, Bill Gates Foundation. These are the 300 most top Ivy League headed Latinos you've seen. And when I told them this story about how difficult, like college was difficult, but not the grades, it was the guilt that was really challenging for me personally. And should I stay? Should I go back? Should I go back into the workforce and help my family? All of that. And I can't tell you the number of students that came up to me that got accepted to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and said, you know what? 
I didn't want to go because I didn't want to leave my family. But after listening to you, I feel really empowered to go. And now I can help my family even more. So I'm hopeful that, and this is why we tell these stories, right, Nellie, is that so people can learn from those experiences. But for me, leaving home as a Latina was probably the most courageous, but the most impactful thing I've done for my family. So when you went to college, when did the whole tech thing come back into your mind? How did you decide to start a business? How did you find what you were supposed to do with your life? And by the way, at that point, you weren't married yet, right? Right. So I was single. I was in such a hurry to get through college, which is another learning moment. Don't be in a hurry. I tell my children, I mean, don't take six years either, but you know, I was in a mad hurry, three and a half years. I was taking 16 hours, summer courses, get me out of here because I felt really late. I moved to New York City because to me, New York City was the melting pot of technology. All the banks and brokerage houses were moving away from the mainframe into the Unix system. And so I got an opportunity to work for a privately held company and I took it. And honestly, I mean, true story, I just used the values that I learned in my own family. Hard work ethic, first to come, last to leave. You know, look for opportunities. That was my entree into the tech services field. And that's, I don't know what the bio says, but entre nosotros, I miss my family. Here I was a Latina. I moved to New York City by myself. I couldn't afford to live in the city. So I lived in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. My first salary was $24,000 a year. And I was on my own, just searching for that opportunity, just searching, just searching to make myself better, to be a better version of myself for my family. And I missed home. It was at the time where my sister was having her babies and getting married and I was the godmother. I thought, how do I find my way back to Texas? And I begged the chairman at the time, could I open your Texas office? I didn't get the job. He didn't think that there was a future in Texas, at least not in Dallas. And so I left. I probably would have stayed there forever, to be honest. I was learning. I was in a leadership role and I just wanted to come home. So I came home before I started Pinnacle. I found another company I came to work for in Dallas, Texas. And then six months later, after I moved back, I started Pinnacle from my apartment living room floor. I was young and single, and I guess I didn't know any better. (laughs) Crazy. But did you know what you were going to do with Pinnacle? What were you doing in those early days? Because even the whole world has changed. What were you selling at that moment? I was selling a service. I was 25 years old. I was very confident. I had learned and became very aware of technology professionals and their value to major corporations. Today, Pinnacle serves 20% of the Fortune 100 largest companies. And so I was working with large financial institutions that really valued technology and what they were paying for contractors was like, my eyes were like this big. And so one of the things I was taught in my family is to look for opportunities for the long game, not the, what can I do today? What's cool today, but what will feed the family for decades? And so for me, I was 25 years old. I was starting at the beginning. I didn't have anything. I wasn't married. I was single. I had no one that I needed to take care of, but my family. And I was very confident. So I called up Dell. I paid full price and they gave me credit. And I bought a computer of my own and in my apartment office, my apartment living room floor. By then we have the world wide web. I'm taking you back 28 years ago. 
you have the internet. I used to call with lists, uh, conferences where techies would be. I'd call into corporations and find their name and sell their services. And finally, I got in front of a hiring manager that gave me the opportunity. And I used that as seed money to now what Pinnacle is today. Wow, Nina. Did you even know how to set up the business right? Because, you know, we've all made so many mistakes. I've made so many mistakes. I was learning as I went. And I wasn't technical. (laughs) So I spent all my day talking to technology engineers, database administrators, Unix administrators. I just spent my entire day learning, listening. And that I would credit, you know, if I had to teach. And today I find myself not just as a teacher, but a learner. But if I had to teach, I would say I learned so much from listening. And it's important to have a learning mindset. I didn't know what I didn't know. I was 25 years old talking to people. In fact, I didn't get certified as a woman-owned business until five years later because I wouldn't advertise myself as the CEO. I wouldn't tell anybody. Again, back to that humility thing. I didn't walk into the corporation and say, I'm the CEO. I walked in with my specialty and how I can be of value and convincing someone that I could be of value. And one day someone asked me, are you women-owned? And I said, why are you asking? And she said, well, you know, do you know that there's a certification if you're woman-owned? And I said, well, tell me more. And I found out that there's a whole club of women that run their own businesses and they come together every year and they inspire each other and they help each other. And there's people just like me. They started a business. And so when I found that community and when I found that cohort, then I really dug deep. I started attending the conferences. I started listening, talking to women, interviewing women, finding out what they do. And again, having that learning mindset. But that changed the game for me because as an entrepreneur, it's hard to be on your own in an island somewhere. You don't know what you don't know. But if you have someone to look to, to aspire to, I remember at the Women's Business Council, we were a tiny little company. We were $2 million when I joined the council. And now I'm proud to be one of the distinguished women of that council and proud to be one of the largest companies represented in that council. Today, Pinnacle is a global company. We operate in 25 countries. We're about to open our India office in Chennai, India in the first quarter. And, you know, we went from locally, regionally, nationally, and now global. And now I'm going back to that same neighborhood in awe of what has been accomplished, but eager to mentor other women. I think it's important to talk about when you start a little company and when you come from our humble beginnings, even if you go to college and even, you're also used to doing things, you're thinking small, small scale. You know, most of our Latino businesses are under $100,000 and many of us don't, we start them and then we give up. One of the things that nobody talks about When you start a small business and you start dealing with vendors and all these things, we don't know always how to do a deck, how to speak in a professional way, how to go and make a presentation that's empowered so that you get the deal. Can you talk a little bit about the learning curve, the code switching we have to do to be like with our humble family? You know, like my son sometimes is with me and my parents and he goes, how did you come out of these people? Like you're so sophisticated. And then you're talking to them and then you're like, you almost like bring it to a different level. And I go, Lucas, that's called code switching and how we have to learn to be in these corporations and write these unbelievable decks at their level. And if not hire companies that help us do it, how did you figure all that shit out? (laughs) It's a lot. 
I love this because you are getting to the crux of like the issue. Like, let's not talk 10,000. Like, how did you get in there? I would say, number one, you have to have a learning mindset. You have to be willing to learn. Number two, there are a variety of ways. Back when I started, we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have TikTok. We barely had the internet. We didn't have the accessibility that we have today. I would call into companies and talk to people and learn. Today, what I would say, the invitation is to practice and to surround yourself with people that are already doing it. This is what I meant when I said in the council, I would look up to women that had national companies and ask them and talk to them and call them. And I find that anything you want to do, you have to surround yourself by people that have already been there and be willing to surrender that you're not the smartest person. I have always punched above my weight class. And I have to tell you, it's easy to say it's hard to do. Because when you're punching above your weight class and you're surrounding yourself by smarter people, there's a tendency to say, oh man, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that. So what I'm inviting people to do is not easy. You have to have the right confidence in the headspace to be able to do it. Do it anyways. Even if you feel silly, be in those conversations, find the cohort, people learn in communities. In my case, I found mentors and sponsors and I found every single little executive program you could be. If you look at my bio, you know I went to the Chalk Executive Program, the Harvard Executive Program, the Kellogg Executive Program. They were all through scholarships and all through WeBank. So I was learning and finding ways. And the second and final piece of advice I would give to this particular question, you have to practice. You're not going to show up and, and do an investor-ready deck on day one. It's kind of like life. You're in a constant state of progress, never perfection. You have to understand that you're never going to get there, but you must practice. People don't practice hard times. They don't practice hard conversations. They don't practice things that they don't like doing. They don't practice those things. Conflict even. Even conflict. You know this, I am a triathlete. I've been a triathlete for 28 years. I've ran my first race in 1996. I'm addicted to what it does for my mind and my body. Because I believe that your mind and your body work together. And as much as we need to feed our brain, we need to challenge our bodies. And some of the best times when I'm challenging myself, when I really want to give up and I can't give up, or I really want to stop and I can't stop swimming, or I can't stop cycling because, I mean, you just can't. You're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You can't stop. When you're forced to put your head down and to keep going, when you learn what momentum can do in your life, if you're constantly stopping, 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 it's like slamming on your brakes every day. So swimming has taught me a lot about momentum and gaining momentum. And when you gain momentum, you can do a lot of things with momentum. You've got to find that rhythm and that momentum in your life. And then, you know, the running piece for me, it takes a lot of heart. You're exhausted. It's the last piece. You want to give up. And it's how badly do you want it? And for me, it teaches me humility too, because there's always some younger version of me running, blowing past me. Sometimes they're older. And sometimes they're younger. And whether they're younger or they're older, I'm like, oh, hell no. And it just inspires me to keep going. So I practice those difficult moments. I practice getting kicked, getting shoved. This is like business, right? You're going to get kicked in the head. 
you're going to think this is crazy, but when we're practicing as a group, I always put myself in the middle of all the swimmers where I will get kicked and shoved the most. And the reason I do that is because in life, you need to learn how to respond and not how to react. Many times when we're kicked, we react and we need to learn how to not react when we get kicked and when we get shoved and when we get hurt emotionally or physically. And so that is good practice for me that I can withstand any kind of jab and just kind of, I always tell my daughters, women respond, girls react. And so don't be that reactor. Take the moment and choose how you want to behave because your feelings, you can't control your feelings. You feel the way you do, but your behavior, you can control your behavior. You can control your decisions. And so I find that I practice these concepts physically, mentally, and I hone that because when I do get triggered by a conversation or shoved, then I can lean back and breathe and say, I get to choose how I'm going to respond. I'm so glad you're saying this because, you know, I'm a therapist, you know, I went back to school and I got a psychology degree, but if I didn't have exercise and if I didn't have, you know, that I go to therapy. And that if I feel like I don't know something, I hire a coach or whatever. It's important for people to hear like, you do not get through this life alone, trying to do everything yourself. You're going to be a mess. You need help. And what you were saying about momentum, we should also share with people that sometimes you go through periods of your life where nothing's happening. And then I'm going to use a biblical term because I use it a lot. Then the quickening comes. Everything comes at once. Like a lot of good things come at once. And sometimes that's even harder than when bad things come because you're not prepared. You're not ready for that success or whatever. And you have to integrate all this stuff. So I want you to talk about that because I know you've gone through these periods and how do you also go with the flow of the obstacle course that is life? The reason why I'm an endurance athlete is because you're always enduring something in life. It's not just building a business. I've dedicated myself to my, I have four children and a husband. I mean, I don't even know how you did that. Four kids with this international company. One step at a time. One day at a time. My life is about constant progress. And I think about the long game because we often overestimate what we can do in a year and we underestimate what we can do in a decade. Nobody thinks about a decade. I love that. Think about how much you want to accomplish in a year. You're like, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And when you don't do it, you're all upset. You're pissed off. And then like, oh, next year's coming. Versus we overestimate what we can accomplish in a year. And we underestimate what we can accomplish in a decade. If you would have told me in a decade, I would take a company from the ground up. I would earn three honorary doctorates. I would, the president would name me a presidential ambassador. I would give birth to four children. I'm like, what? In a decade? And so I feel like playing the long game for me is what keeps me tethered. It's about constant progress every year. It's not about highs and lows, although there are real highs and lows. And by the way, I try to not get too high when things are high and too low when things are low. I try to keep myself medium because whether it's good news or bad news, I have to remember I'm super grateful for all of it. You talked about happiness a minute ago, and I find that people have a different barometer for happiness. Everybody is either happy or unhappy based on what they think 
life's blueprint should be, what they should have. They're unhappy because they feel like they should have more because whatever vision that they thought that they should have, they don't have it. If you have achieved more than what you thought your vision could, then you're super happy, you're super grateful. And so I find that gratitude for me is the secret to happiness. My personal blueprint of where I came from and what I thought I would accomplish, I've been able to do a little bit more. And so every day I'm just grateful and happy. And so I find that sometimes taking a couple of minutes to just find a little gratitude in your life and focusing on the good things is how I get through. Hold on. Moneymaker will be right back. Let's get back to the show. You and I uh, often run into each other at events, and some of them are Latino events, American events, corporate events. I think it's important to talk about raising your hand, showing up, promoting yourself, promoting your company, which in our culture is kind of like taboo. We're supposed to be humble and we forget that we're in a country that you have to choose yourself in order for other people to choose you. Can you talk about putting yourself out there, making yourself, declaring yourself the expert in a field and following through on that in order to succeed? I think the key word there is the follow through. I think you can be confident and declare yourself as long as you're also working on the follow through because the proof is always in the pudding. And so sometimes you can't grow a company alone just on marketing. You must focus on execution. If you had to ask Pinnacle for our secret sauce, it would be a two lenses overlapping and it would be operational excellence and execution has to be there coupled with customer intimacy. You know, we develop customers. We don't want customers. We want partners. We don't want them for a year. We want them for a decade. We've had customers for 22, 23 years, 15 years, 10 years. So working on that execution, and then you absolutely need to raise your hand and be involved. And for me, the invitation would be to have others evaluate your leadership versus yourself. Because if you're telling everybody you're the best, it's a very different feel if somebody else is telling that. And so I go back to that getting involved. I always tell people to use their leadership in something than their day job. Behind me is a gift I got last year. It's a scholarship. It was my first philanthropic thing I did. It was five years into the company. It was in the year 2000. So 26 years ago, I used to use my leadership to raise dollars for Hispanic students to go to college. And at the time, I used my leadership for something other than my day job. And to go out there in the community, I started to get people's attention. Giving back to the community isn't something that I'm doing today because it's hip. It's something that I was doing in the year 2000. And so I find that it is important to get your execution. So you've got to be able to have the meat and potatoes. You do want to step out there but you want to show others your leadership and other than your day job. So important. One of the things I know you love to talk about, and I, and I do too, because I have a lot of friends that show up that were in my TV field and they go, did you just make way more money than we did? Or what? I go, no, when we were both 28 or 30, you had FOMO. 
So you always had to go to the party. You had to buy the Jaguar. You had to go to the whatever. And I was sitting home building a business and I wasn't suffering, but I was sacrificing. And sacrificing is not suffering. Just like children, you love something greater than yourself. You're going for a goal greater than yourself. I know that you talk a lot about FOMO and that feeling that especially young people have that I got to be at the right place. I got to do it the right thing. And the fact is the people that do great things in life are actually hunkered down doing the meat and potatoes. And it's not so glamorous and it's fun because you're building something, but you're not out there all the time. But then the results, because math doesn't lie, add up over time. Can you talk about that? Oh, gosh. You're just right in the belly of the beast. I love these questions because they're the stuff nobody talks about. And they're right where you need it. I tell this to my daughters all the time. What you are talking about is discipline. The discipline of not chasing the shiny penny. I said this on CNN Money and it wasn't too popular because nobody wants to hear it, but you are alluding to it and I'm going to say it again. It's not sacrifice. It's not suffering, but reinvesting back into your business, delaying gratification. I said those words. I said, oh, here's the secret to my success. Delay gratification. (laughs) And everyone's like, what? I don't want to do that. Nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants to run out, buy the million dollar house, the $250,000 car, And then I love what you said. You said math doesn't lie. While others are reinvesting back into the firm, today Pinnacle has no outside investors, no venture capital is fully funded organically because of the discipline of 20 years of reinvesting it back into the company. You are talking about a quintessential value that an entrepreneur must have, and that is the discipline. The discipline of reinvesting back into the company and the, the sacrifice that you have to make when others are out there. And that's a real challenge. But again, it really depends. Are you playing the long game or do you just want something for the moment? If you want something for the moment, then ignore the advice. But if you want to be around 28 years later, and if you want to move to the next proverbial level, then some level of discipline and reinvesting back into the company is going to be necessary. You and I both have had a career of being contractors of other big corporations, or in my case, in entertainment. In today's world, that's called supplier diversity. And it's a hot topic because I don't think people realize that all Fortune 500s, all these corporations have to give contracts to minority and women-owned businesses, have to. But so many of us, A, don't know about it. B, don't have the discipline to do what it takes to be in the game, in the list. You do have to get certifications and do all these things. Latino companies are the least people to get contracts because many times we don't even know to go after them. And I tell people, I also funded my company, my television company, completely through supplier diversity. I even borrowed money from the companies that were giving me contracts. I never had to raise money because I said, I'll do that. I'll scale that for you. I'll do it. But you got to give me the line of credit because a bank wouldn't give it to me at that time. I want to talk about supplier diversity because I think it's a huge opportunity. And if there are other opportunities out there that we as communities, women, not just Latinos, but minorities, women that we're missing because we're not preparing for it. We don't know about it. There's going to be so many opportunities, you know, with AI. What are the things that we should be looking at? So that's a big question. 
It's a big question, but it brings up two points for me. And I love that we're so aligned. The saying that comes to me as I hear you ask the question is, with awareness, there is choice. Without it, there's only habit. And when I first heard that quote, I was like, what? It just seemed like a couple of words. And then when you really stop and digest the quote, with awareness, there is choice. Without it, there's only habit. And you're right, as Latinos, Latinas, we do what we were taught, what's habitual, what we always do, what we've always done, whatever is habitual. Until we gain awareness. Oh, there's something called supplier diversity. Oh, there are people inside corporate America where their job is to identify it. Oh, so with awareness, you can shift your strategy and then you have a choice, whether you want to learn more about it or not. And what I love about you and that I think that you and I have in common is your curiosity. You're constantly curious. You stick your finger in there and pull and say, hey, I want to see what else is in there. To your point, when you talk about your radio station, you're like, so I started as a contractor and then I found out this and then I asked them for a loan. That to me showcases your curiosity and another big value that I want to invite whoever's listening to have is that curiosity. How does this work? For me, we work with some of the largest companies in the world and the largest company in the world. We have a big tech practice, a big financial services practice, but we didn't start off that way. We started off as what you'd call a tier two supplier. So we were two tiers away from, at the time, AT&T. They're one of our most tenured customers. I think we've served them for about 23 years, but I didn't start off that way. And it was my curiosity of talking to people in procurement, in supplier diversity. Wait, how do I become a tier one? How does this work now? So what, there's something called an RFP. I didn't know what an RFP was. I didn't know how to respond to an RFP. In fact, I remember when we first started getting RFPs, we lost 67 RFPs before we won our first one. Again, that endurance, that curiosity, that show me what I did wrong. Okay, how do I learn the ropes? And so I think there is a lot of value and awareness, but what you're saying rings very, very true, not just in business, but in life. Become aware of the opportunities that are available to you. So that is kind of my, what I'm feeling when you ask that question. To be more specific, I do think supplier diversity, corporations don't have to use minority-owned businesses, only government agencies do. But the Fortune 500 has very big goals around it. And of course, now in the dynamics of what has happened in our country, you see the diversity conversation louder than ever. And there are lots of groups that are taking advantage of this opportunity. Latinos, for some reason, are... We could embrace this, I think, a little bit more. Oftentimes, when I talk to my friends in corporations and I find out they have no Latino tier ones, they're not doing business with Latino companies, they often say to me, well, you know, we got this letter from other groups, but we didn't hear from the Latinos. And so I think there's a real opportunity for us to stand and advocate for ourselves in a way where other groups do. It's very public that you just got this huge contract with Amazon which congratulations, because that's a company game changer, right? For any company, so proud of you. But I saw an incredible documentary on Jeff Bezos recently on PBS. And I thought it was fascinating for what we're talking about because he said he was going with Amazon, 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 Amazon. And he realized that he had to reverse engineer his success in a different way. 
and that he realized that in order for him to get all the companies to give him the deals, because that was going to be his cash flow, because Amazon was losing money and losing money, that he had to go get a government contract because he felt that if he had a government agree that he was safe enough to be the cloud for the government, that everyone else would give him the contract. So here's Jeff Bezos with the most unbelievable company. And he realizes I have to reverse engineer and go do something else. Because again, and sometimes in your companies, you're putting money in the company, but you need money. You need cash flow in a different way. And he moves himself to Washington, D.C., gets a house in Washington, D.C., and spends two years basically schmoozing everybody, learning the government contracting space, gets the contract, and he then creates his cash flow business that allowed Amazon to finally be able to soar. And I just thought the kind of work we constantly have to do in this world of AI, where everything's going so fast, that we have to learn to also pivot. We have to learn to reverse engineer certain things, think completely differently, and be around people where we can sit around and go, okay, let's be really smart and figure this out. And I know you do that all the time. So can you talk about that? Wow. There is so much there. The reverse engineering piece, the pivoting piece, the existential threat. You have to be ready for an existential threat. When I reflect back on Pentacle's 28 years, we've been through three existential threats. The first was in 9-11, where we had to pivot. That's when I learned what an RFP was. Like, what? We didn't do RFPs after 9-11. But I learned through curiosity and just getting in there is that corporations weren't buying time and materials. They were buying fixed price deliverable-based IT solutions that were only given through RFPs. Where I go, now we got to pivot. But it was an existential threat to the company. We almost went out of business, by the way. That was in 2001. Then the 2008 financial collapse, and then finally COVID-19. So it's not like it's been just a straight hockey stick. It is a lot of what you're talking about, reverse engineering, pivoting, sustaining a existential threat. I mean, but that just comes with the mindset. It just comes with the mindset. Is it happening to me or is it happening for me? For us, when 2008 came, I'll tell you what happened in in 2008 and after COVID. After COVID, I had to be super creative. I had to be honest with people. And by the way, one of the best gifts that I would invite people to have is to be transparent when you don't have the answers. You don't have to have all the answers. And for me, uh, having global calls with people during COVID, I mean, just seeing that transparency, I thought there was big value in that. After COVID, I knew that after having been through 9-11 in 2008, there would be a rebound. We didn't know when the rebound would happen, but we knew there would be one because there is one thing we can be sure of in life is that hard times don't last. They don't last forever, forever. Do they last a day, a month, a year? Remains to be seen, but it's not forever. And so I took the learnings and here's the messaging here, hopefully. The messaging is actually use what happens to you and learn and then actually attribute that, like actually learn it. And I learned that there would be a rebound after 2008. So during COVID-19, when we couldn't measure ourselves through revenues or spend under management or clients we won, 
we started working inwardly towards Pinnacle. Most people were cleaning out their closets. They were doing the same. They were looking inwardly. They were spending time with their family, cleaning their closets. Everybody was reflecting, looking inwardly, prioritizing what really matters in life. All those things that were happening on the personal side, we started doing it at the Pinnacle side, reflecting internally, honing in. And so instead, when we couldn't grow revenues, we have a big travel sector and that was obviously down. We started working inwardly. So we implemented Workday as an ERP system. We started scaling our cybersecurity. We started investing in areas of the business where we knew that we needed to get to our proverbial next level. And the rebound has been massive, right? Ever since the rebound happened after COVID-19, we've welcomed Apple, JP Morgan Chase, Meta, Google, eBay, Amazon, United. I mean, so they're a reflection of taking something that happens to you and being creative and saying, how can this work for me? Incredible. You and I, we all know each other's children. I love your beautiful daughter that we were just with. And you know my two sons. And we're very committed, both of us, to building generational wealth, but also making sure that our children are grounded, that they do the work, that they're not handed anything. Can we talk a lot about, you know, we are the ones that have really sacrificed and killed ourselves and done all this. And our kids, even if we are tough on them, which we are, have still lived a much easier life than you and I have lived. What is the answer? How do we inspire other people? But also I think generational wealth is important because I tell my kids, I just sent them to a great conference and I said, if you guys can't figure out how to completely do better than me, forget about it. Because you've had, you have all my contacts, all my knowledge. So how do we take parents like us and encourage them? Because so many parents, especially minority parents, don't know how to push their kids into even greater greatness. Sometimes they get stuck on, they have to be the great one in the family. And by the way, I tell my kids all the time, I go, we have different types of intelligence, all of us. So I also know what they have and what I have and what I don't have and what they have. But I want to push them into greatness because I was just in Spain for a month. And, you know, Spain is a socialist country. And I go, how come these people are living such a great life? And I realized because they're not immigrants. They've lived there for many, many generations. So they've inherited houses and cars and businesses. So they're starting from a level up here not down here like we did. So the kids, what do we say about all these kids? We could talk an hour over this topic. It's something that's been on my mind too, because if you reflect on your background and my background, it was our hunger, our positive ambition, but mostly the adversity. Without adversity, we wouldn't have grown. We wouldn't have been hungry. We wouldn't have been ambitious. And so how do we protect our kids? The answer to me, I find is values and to define what is success. I think it is really important to literally define what is success. Is it money? Is that it? I know a lot of wealthy people that are miserable. I know a lot of billionaires that are miserable. Well, that's not success. What is it that I'm pushing them towards? Let's define the game first. And my kids are now older. So my youngest is 17. My oldest is 23. So I have 17, 18, 22, and 23. So they're at a different phase where now I can have a different conversation with them. When they were young, I'm just telling them what to do. 
And now I'm coaching them and giving them agency. So the first question I would ask is, let's define success. What is it? I don't want you to be this billionaire that's miserable. And so what happens is you have to define your values. What is it that you stand for? What is it that you want? What I had hoped for my children is for them to actually be happy. If they're happy, it's irrelevant what they're doing for a living. If they're emotionally happy, if they're connected to their values, to their family, if they can find a life partner, if they can have experiences, see the world, just be happy. That's what I want for them more than anything. But I think other than that, teaching them, for me particularly, that we're stewards of our life. It doesn't last forever. And so what is it that we're trying to accomplish? I got some advice from a dear friend on a book I'm going to talk about. It's called Strangers in Paradise. I don't know if you've read it. I love it. It is about generational wealth. It's about mindset. It's about different approaches to it. And it inspired me to have family meetings. So we have family meetings. We have family meetings where we talk about, and I teach my kids the things that they don't learn in college, a credit card, a mortgage. I mean, what I love about you, Nellie, is you've been talking unapologetically about wealth for a very long time. It's just out there. You're talking about it like it's normal. Most people don't want to talk about it. But I love your approach to this. We should be talking about building generational wealth. We should be talking about that. It's not a dirty word. And generational wealth doesn't mean Louis Vuitton. It doesn't mean that. It's freedom. It means freedom. And it means philanthropy. How could you and I be giving back to other people if we didn't make money? I think people in our community particularly see billionaires, for instance, as horrible, evil people instead of, you know, I love Fidel Vargas since we both love him. He always says to the to the kids in Hispanic Scholarship Fund, billionaires give back more money to the world potentially than any government, than any whatever, because they have free tax money, which is why, Nina, I'm writing, my next book is about taxes, because I think we have such a misunderstanding about taxes and how to deal with the tax system that is keeping us from that final hurrah of wealth with intention and the ability for us to give back in a way that no poor person could ever do to our community. And I find that at least my parents' philosophy, what I've learned is that wealthy people start teaching their children at a very young age. Our parents didn't have a stock portfolio, at least mine didn't. And everything was a secret financially. The hardships were public, the finances, you don't know what you don't know. How do you learn? And so I have toyed with this approach of teaching them at a very young age, at an age you got to meet them where they are. So only you will know when the right time is. We all know our children, but start talking about values, start talking about values very early on. In fact, in our family, it's almost like we have our top 10 values. These are things that define us as a family. These are things that we do. They're traditions that we have, that we hold dear. I was thinking about it. I was talking to my husband last night because this year will be my last, our last year of spending New Year's together. So we have a rule. It came from my mother and father. Every year we weren't allowed to go out. We were allowed to go out, but we had to be back when the clock struck midnight. 
we had to get mom and dad's blessing. Like, and we would run and, you know, we'd fight over each other. We'd get on our knees and say, me first, me first, me first, me first. And so I carried on that tradition with my children for their whole lives until they went off to college. They had to be home at the stroke of midnight. They always get their blessing. And so my son is 17 this year. He's going off to college. He's the last one to go to college. And so next year, they don't have to come home and get their mom's blessing after a year. It's the worst. But it's the value. We value these things. I don't know if they'll end up doing it with their kids because they have all complained how hard it is to be at the party during high school. You know, I got to go home. You know, we got these traditions. We got these values. But I think it's okay. I think it's all right. So I went on a tangent on that question. But uh, for me, it's about really instilling those values because those will transcend through generations and they will dictate the decisions they make. What is the last thing you want to just leave, especially women, with? First of all, I've enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. I mean, you and I could talk for hours. <laughs> for hours. Without wine, by the way. We could go deep. <laughs> the, I love your ability to go deep. I love your sense of care and why you're doing these things and how important these conversations are, especially on the last topic that we touched. I think it's so critical and important. What I would say... I think that if I had to sum up my life, I love what you said about we can't do this on our own. I have learned that you can't do it on your own. God is a great therapist. He's a great guide. I want to invite people into surrendering to the fact that we can't accomplish anything on our own. And we need that inspiration, whether it's from your faith, your family, Most people call me a courageous person, and I feel like courage comes from the people around us. It doesn't come from within. It comes from the people around us, knowing that we have people that will catch us, your tribe, your family, your community. And I want to invite people into thinking about the things that we talked about today, like the long game. Did it happen to me or for me? Do I have a learning mindset? Can I pivot on a dime? How can I continue to grow myself as an individual? Because it is a journey, ups and downs. But through it all, I feel like if we're constantly chasing the best version of ourselves, never going to get bored. Nina Vaca, I love you madly. <laughs> and this has been such a joy that I wish we could do it for five hours. And we will in person. I know. Do it for five the hours. next time we see each other. <laughs> I know. I love you so much. I love talking to you. and. I just love being around you. I do. I think the world is a better place because you are impacting it. (laughs) Moneymaker is a production of Money News Network. Moneymaker is written and hosted by me, Nellie Galan. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Thanks for listening. See you next time.